Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. So, uh, hey, we just came off Thanksgiving, right? I mentioned that a moment ago. And uh, so now that Thanksgiving is behind us, we've kind of launched right in. Today is December 1st, and we've launched into uh, something that in the last few years I've been kind of reminding us is referred to as the season of Advent or the Advent season in the Christian calendar. And that includes the four Sundays leading up to uh, Christmas Day. Um, And just by way of reminder again this year, that word Advent, it comes from an old uh, English word that's derived from a Latin word, and that Latin word is Adventus, which means arrival, the arrival. And that in turn is derived from another word, Advenir, which means to come. And this season that we're entering into now is all about the arrival, the coming of Jesus. Not the only coming of Jesus, but the first coming of Jesus. And what we're going to do over the next four weeks, okay, so we're going to think about the coming of Jesus over the next four weeks. He will always, in a sense, be the center of the story. But what I want to do this year is I want to think about I want to look at this story through the lens and the lives of characters in this story that are not the central character, the central character being Jesus. And I want you to see how uh, the lives of these other characters in and around this story of the coming of Jesus says something to us that's relevant to our lives, our relationship with God, and how, they, how we walk that out today. Okay? And one of the stories within the bigger story of the coming of Jesus is the story uh, that I'm going to call this morning the story of courage. The story of courage. It's a story that I think, I know for me, and possibly for many of us, we often miss when we're thinking about this season and what it means. Because the hero of this story, although he's visible, he's kind of in a sense um, in the background. In nativity scenes that we see, he stands there, Silently next to the manger in which the baby Jesus is laid. And he doesn't even get a single line to speak. He's stum. He just stands there. Um, And he seems to play kind of a secondary role in the larger unfolding story. And then, after a little bit, he disappears completely from the pages of history, from the pages of biblical history. He's there for a little while, and then he's gone. This guy's name, you may have guessed already, is Joseph. And I want to read to you what the Scripture records about this man, at least in part. 
And I'm reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Uh, and this is in the NIV. And it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, I pay attention here because this is the character we're thinking about this morning. But Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. How would you like that for an epitaph? A righteous man. And did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce, to, to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union until, he gave, until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, the reality is that the courage of Joseph made it possible for the child Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, to survive a life-threatening early childhood. Joseph was the man to whom God entrusted the task of protecting the mother and her child from the time that she conceived Jesus. That's no small thing. That's no small entrustment that God gave to Joseph. He was the man who led Mary safely along the dangerous roads to Bethlehem, to Egypt, and eventually back again to northern Israel. As we look at this story of Joseph... Within the larger story of Jesus, we discover he had the courage to do three specific things. I just want to enumerate what they are for you. The first is live an upright life in a world that was upside down. Secondly, marry a pregnant girl who was not carrying his child. And thirdly, protect his wife and son in their flight to Egypt. And then again upon their return to Nazareth and for some years to follow. And I want you to think this morning about this character, Joseph, this man, and two things I want to leave with you and apply to our lives in relationship to the courage that he demonstrated and is recorded in the scriptures for us. The first is this. Joseph was a man of moral courage. There are lots of different kinds of courage. The first thing I want you to see about this guy is he was a man of moral courage. In the middle of a story that is this birth of Jesus that is all filled really with visitations of angels and supernatural encounters, 
we find this pretty ordinary guy called Joseph. And that's what I want you to think about for a moment in relationship to his moral courage, was that Joseph was an ordinary man. And when we read the scriptures, we find that the scriptures are replete, both in the Old Testament and the New, with God using ordinary people like Joseph to accomplish his work. Ordinary people like you and me. Paul the Apostle describes how God's grace works in the lives of ordinary people. I want you to see what Paul says about that. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Now, I want you to do that this morning. Think of who you were when God first set the favor of his grace upon your life and called you unto him. Think of who you were. Paul says, think of who you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not. To nullify things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you were in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore it is as written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Joseph was the kind of guy who boasted in God. And he was the kind of guy in whom God could trust to be strong in a crisis. And Joseph had to work through a series of crises in and around the birth of Jesus in his early childhood. God could trust him with that, knowing that he was a man that would boast only in the Lord. Through God, he was strong enough. And resilient enough to protect his family, as I said earlier, through those hazardous journeys that he had to undertake. And in those days, it wasn't like getting in a car and heading down the highway. He probably walked most of those journeys. Joseph was not just an ordinary man, though. Joseph was a man who lived, the scripture makes clear here, a morally upright life. And I want to think about that for a moment. The scripture says Joseph was a righteous man. What an amazing thing to have said as a testimony about you. Joseph was a righteous man. He was known to be a righteous person. This means he had a strong relationship with God. So strong was his relationship with God that God's character began to be formed in Joseph. Hence the courageousness that he began to display in and throughout this story. He was courageous despite his own insecurities and fears and failings. He had learned to discipline himself in such a way 
as to live the way that God wanted him to. Not because it was a religious duty, but because he wanted to. He was courageous enough to live a moral life in a corrupt culture. Now let me just park there for a moment. If we take nothing else away from the story of Joseph, here's something that's directly applicable to each one of us. He learned how to live righteously in an unrighteous culture. How to live a godly, upright life in a culture that was corrupt in so many ways. You know, he grew up among a people that were religious. They were religious, but they weren't righteous. Even the religious leaders of his day were corrupt men. They were more concerned and more interested in politics, power, and possessions than they were in living for God. You know, truly righteous people make the rest of us feel uncomfortable. Let me press into that a minute. Truly righteous people, they certainly make me feel uncomfortable. I'm talking about people who are having the character of God formed in them to such a degree that you can say, there is a righteous man, there is a righteous woman. Of course, we all have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. That's the whole issue of justification. But then there's the walking out of that. There's the formation of the character of Christ in us so that God can say and point to, like he did with Joseph, and utter the testimony of, there is a righteous man. Truly righteous people don't make the rest of us uncomfortable because they try to do that. It's because when we're around people that are having the character of Christ formed in them such that that kind of testimony can be uttered about their lives, we realize what the righteousness of God looks like when it takes shape in a life. Now, don't go condemning yourself because of what I've said and think, oh my gosh, I'm not righteous then. We're all in the process of having that character formed in us. I'm nowhere near where I want to be. It's a little bit like, not the same degree, but it's a little bit like when Isaiah the prophet saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple and he had a revelation of who God was and how holy and righteous God was. And what did he say? Woe is me, I'm ruined. This is the great prophet Isaiah. Woe is me, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So the people of Joseph's day, just like the people that went before him, did not treat the righteous kindly. Those who came before Joseph, you know what they did? They rejected and killed the prophets of God. And then in that same era of Joseph, later on, what would they do? They would reject and kill the Son of God, Jesus himself. Today, in our so-called sophisticated, postmodern, 21st century culture, nearing the end of the second decade of the 21st century, moral purity is mocked 
as a vestige of the Victorian past. And corruption is celebrated as a way to get ahead. People are uncomfortable with the thought that Jesus lived a righteous life. And so while they launch an assault on his divinity and say, no, he wasn't really God in the flesh. He was just some rabbinic teacher, some good guy, but not God. While they, while they launch this assault on his divinity, they also promote the moral dumbing down of Jesus. And they kind of scoff at the idea that he lived or that we can live or that we should live a morally upright life. That's the kind of life that Jesus, that Jesus lived. It's the kind of life that Joseph lived, which is why God said he was a righteous man. Yeah, Joseph was an ordinary guy, but he was a man of godly character. He was the kind of father that I think we would all want in an earthly father to this degree. He knew the right way to live, and he lived that way, whatever the cost. Did you notice in the description of Joseph as being righteous that that is coupled with the fact that he desired to keep Mary from being exposed and disgraced? He treated her the right way, with loving care and concern. Even though at that time, he must have been completely perplexed and not really known what was going on. I want you to see, if we can play it this morning. Hold your breath, hopefully it'll, it'll work. I want you to see uh, a depiction in a moment of courage, uh, of uprightness and integrity. It comes from a movie called The Cinderella Man. Has anybody seen this movie other than me? A few people have. Right. And let just here's a kind of qualifier. <clears throat> I'm not necessarily recommending everything in this movie. <laughs> but this scene really says something powerful, I think. And, and actually, the movie does itself. Um, <clears throat> for what it's worth, uh, Russell Crowe plays the lead role supported by Renee Zellweger in the movie. And let me just set this scene up for you. Um, it's called, the movie's called The Cinderella Man because it takes, uh, this was a nickname, the movie takes its title from, and it was a nickname given to James J. Braddock, who, like Cinderella in the fairy tale, had a second choice, uh, ch chance in life. He took it, and was incredibly successful. And the film recounts how Braddock, uh, his seeming like fairy tale rise from poverty to becoming uh, the world heavyweight boxing champion, and all that went with that. In the movie, we see this guy Braddock, it's proud boxer, and he loses everything because of the depression. He's got nothing left. He's living in abject poverty with his family. And in the scene we're about to see, Braddock discovers that his son has just gone along to the local butcher and he has stolen a sausage to bring back to feed his family. They're starving. They have no food. 
So let's watch this scene if we can together. I hope it works. Hey, Dad. Hey. No ships today, Dad. What are you doing, son? I'm being good. I'm being quiet. I'm being safe. Great. How you doing? Daddy, Jay Star. What? Jay Star. What's all this about? See, it's a salon. Young lady, your brother's in enough trouble without you telling on him. You understand? It's from the butchers. And he won't say a word about it, will you, Jay? Will you, Jay? Okay, pick it up. Let's go. Do not test me, boy. Right now. Howard, stay here. Johnson had to go away to Delaware to live with his uncle. Why? His parents didn't have enough money for them to eat. Yeah, well, things ain't easy at the moment, Jay. You're right. There's a lot of people worse off than what we are. And just because things ain't easy, that don't give you the excuse to take what's not yours, does it? That's stealing, right? We don't steal. No matter what happens, we don't steal. Not ever. You got me? Are you giving me your word? Yes. Go on. I promise. And I promise you, we will never send you away. It's okay, kid. You got a little scared, I understand. It's okay. However tough it gets, he says, we don't steal. And then he challenges his son at the end there to commit to living the kind of courageous, honest, upright life that he knows is right, but to do so within the security of his love, because right at the end he says, I promise you this, we'll never send you away, however bad it gets. And this was what was happening to families during the Depression often, because they had no resources. And he commits the security of his love and envelops the son with that, but he challenges him to live with courage, and it takes courage to be honest and not steal when you have nothing. And what I love about that scene is this, this father, this upright father, at least in this respect in his life, he had character, he had integrity. He, could, he may not have been able to feed his kids 
the food they needed because of the circumstance. But you know what he was able to do? He was able to nurture and feed his son's spirit with the courage, integrity, and love that he needed. And that made all the difference. And I ask you this question this morning, and I, and I direct this at my heart too. Do we have this kind of courage and this kind of integrity as those that are followers of Jesus? Are we actually actively cultivating it in our lives? You know, what's relevant for you and for me about the life of Joseph first is the fact that he had this moral courage. And I want to say this, Joseph was not unique and he was not meant to be. He was a unique person in the sense that each of us is unique, but in relationship to his moral courage, he was never meant to be unique. God calls you and I as men and women that follow Jesus and belong to him to have moral courage now in the context we live at the end of the second decade of the 21st century. And there will be times when it will cost us to be courageous in this sense, to have moral courage. And I have to say to you, I don't know, but that cost may be high and it may get higher as time goes on. The reward, though, is the same for us as it was for Joseph. The joy of taking the second chance that each of us has been given by the grace of God. You know, every single one of us has been given a second chance by the grace of God extended to us in Christ. Let's take advantage of that second chance we've been given by the grace of God and say, you know what, Lord, by your grace, through the enabling of your Holy Spirit, with the authority of your word, in the communion of the fellowship of the saints, I will commit to living uprightly in a world that's upside down. That's what I will do. Desire to live righteously and then do it. Because God is in your corner. To extend the boxing metaphor, he's right there for you saying, that a boy, that a girl, go on. You can do it. You can take on the forces of the enemy. You can take on the forces of darkness. You can take on the forces of corruption. And you can live uprightly. And you can do it with joy. All right, there's one other thing I want you to see about Joseph, and then I'm done. Joseph was not just a man of moral courage. I want to say he was a man of extraordinary courage. I've already said he was an ordinary Joe, right? But he had extraordinary courage. How did he do that? Well, here's some ways. First, he restrained his anger and he treated Mary with love. I want you to think about this for a moment. We can only imagine how he reacted when he first found out that Mary was pregnant. The only rational explanation at that point for her pregnancy was that she had had sex with someone else. Because they were betrothed, but they had not had any union at that point. 
Therefore, he must have concluded she'd been unfaithful to him with someone else. That she had, in the terms of that culture at that time, given the nature of betrothal, and I'll speak about that in a moment, effectively committed adultery. And what would the natural reaction be in a situation like that? It would have been shock. It would have been, I can't believe this. It would have been deep sorrow. The prospect of his dreams with Mary having been shattered because of that. There would have been anger. He must have felt betrayed. His pride must have made him want to vindicate himself by punishing her, by making sure the blame went where it belonged. But the amazing thing about this guy's character was he did not do any of that. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't feel angry. I'm not saying that he didn't feel disappointed. And I'm not saying that he wasn't shocked. I think all of the above probably applied. But he made a choice about how he was going to react. And he chose not to react in anger. He chose not to react by trying to vindicate himself. He chose to react by covering and protecting her. He exhibited the kind of self-control that only the Holy Spirit can bring in our lives in a situation like that. So he was an ordinary man, but he was empowered in an extraordinary way to be really courageous when the rubber hit the road. He showed great bravery. You know, it says Joseph effectively resisted societal pressure and he treated Mary with grace. You know, they were in a small town. Things get around in a small town quickly. Public embarrassment. To save face, Joseph would have been justified in just publicly divorcing her, putting it all out there. He was betrothed to her at the time, as I said a moment ago, and in that culture at that time, betrothal was much bigger deal than engagement is in our modern culture. It was much more akin to a covenant commitment as in marriage betrothal. A much bigger deal. And the society around Joseph and Mary would have expected him to have been outraged. We live in a culture that's filled with outrage. Everybody's got to get the rage out there. They would have expected and anticipated that he would have been outraged about this situation and gone public with it. But the strength of his character was such in God that he decided, you know what? I'm just going to do this quietly, privately. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to keep her from public shame and disgrace. And then, of course, the angel intervenes. And he says, that's not all you're going to do. You're actually going to take her to be your wife. And ultimately, you're going to marry her. And he does, and all that comes with that. 
Let me ask you this this morning. Are we willing to love and stand with those whom God loves when the society around us wants to reject them, marginalize them, or dispose of them? Whether they are the unborn child, the elderly or the infirmed, the terminally ill, those with disabilities, those who are poor, those who are powerless, those who are disenfranchised, what do we do? When the society around us treats those in the way that I've just described. Are we like Joseph? Do we come in and stand up and care for and protect? Joseph obeyed God, took Mary to be his wife. When the angel told Joseph that the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, I don't know, it's possible that he even... I don't know how familiar Joseph was. He was a righteous man, so I'm, I'm assuming, kind of reading between the lines, that he was pretty familiar with Scripture. Maybe his mind would have gone back to the very beginning. Like here, this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved on Mary. Maybe he went back to that early creation narrative that speaks about the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters and then God speaking and the power of God creating life. But whether he did or not, the reality is this. He made a courageous decision. He had to decide, am I going to take her to be my wife? Let her bear that child? And in so doing, risk the unjust shame that will be heaped on her and on me? Am I going to do that? Am I going to undertake for this child? His faith in God enabled him to say, you know what? It doesn't matter what the stigma is. The stigma is not going to make me back off from that which God has called me to do. That takes courage. When you get stigmatized, it's very easy to cower and back off. There are times when God will call you and I to a place of obedience and that place will mean being maybe unjustly stigmatized and accused by others. It may mean embracing something which seems irrational to us and laughable to others. That certainly must have been the case for uh, Joseph. I mean, this went beyond reason and must have seemed laughable. Maybe to him initially, but to others around him. There are times when God may ask us to do something that just does not seem reasonable. And others will look at it and think, that's ridiculous. That's laughable. At such times, God wants us to exercise simple faith in him and say, Lord, by your grace... I'm going to make a courageous decision here. And I'm going to obey you. You know, let me just say this. Joseph's uh, courage was tested later, about two years later. I mean, when we do the nativity scene, we always put the wise men and the shepherds together. Uh Uh-uh. That's not the biblical record. You do realize they didn't show up at the same time. The shepherds come a couple, uh, the shepherds come at the time. The wise men come a couple years later. 
and what happens, and this is recorded for us in Matthew 2. The wise men from the east visit the family, and they worship Jesus, and they're given the gifts of gold, uh, incense, and myrrh. And the night after the visit, Joseph is again visited by an angel. Not for the first time. And this angel says to him, you need to take Mary and the child. You need to flee to Egypt. And the reason you need to do that is Herod, the Judean king, is determined to kill the baby. Determined to kill the child at this point, Jesus. And what does Joseph do? Joseph protected the child whenever his life was in danger. Having heard that the wise, you know, from the wise men, then he gets the dream. And what Herod did, incidentally, was he put out a, uh, a directive that all the children two years of age and under were to be killed. So there was mass slaughter going on in an effort to rub Jesus out of the equation. So this was real stuff. The angel of the Lord commanded Joseph and his mother to go to Egypt. And then later on, he commanded them after the death of Herod and Archelaus succeeded him. Later on, uh, the angel appears again uh, in a dream to Joseph and says, you, you can go back now. All that he did required courage. So I want you to think about this. The next time you look at a nativity scene through this season, we'll be setting one up in our house this week. The next time you look at a nativity scene during this Advent season, see Joseph through new eyes. Instead of just the guy that stands stum there by the manger and, you know, doesn't have anything to say, right? Obviously, the primary focuses Jesus, but Mary gets a lot of play in this story too, for obvious reasons. Think about this guy's incredible moral and extraordinary courage. He was courageous because he believed in God. He showed courage in his personal life by being morally and spiritually strong in a world that was very threatening he demonstrated courage despite personal embarrassment and social ostracism. He trusted God. He married a pregnant girl who was not carrying his baby. And his courage was sustaining in that he went on to protect mother and child, not only then, but during the early years that were really life-threatening to Jesus. So I end with this this morning. What are the lessons that we can learn from the life of Joseph, this Joseph, about whom so little is written. First, that courage shows up when we least expect it and when we most need it. God will be faithful to you. You may say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not a courageous person. I'm not a brave person. That's not the issue. You don't have to be innately that. Joseph wasn't. God enabled him to be that. He didn't, he was living a pretty tranquil life. And then suddenly the whole thing was turned upside down. But courage had been 
being formed in him, the character of Christ, this righteous man. Something was going on in him through the Holy Spirit, and he was cooperating with what God was doing. Something was being cultivated. How do we cultivate courage? Courage is cultivated by learning and trusting that God is more powerful than any threat that may come our way. If you want to cultivate courage, trust in God and learn that your God is more powerful than any threat that can come your way. That's what Joseph did. Joseph learned that it didn't matter if the threat came from Herod, his son Archelaus, whether it was from the hostile terrain that he had to navigate on those journeys, whether it was from robbers or foreign lands or the forces of darkness, nothing could overcome the promise and purpose of God into which he had been called and in which he had a part to play. And that's true for us. Our part's not his part, but we have been called into a plan and a purpose. We have a part to play. And we have been called to be overcomers, not those who are overcome. And let me just say this, courage is something kids need in their moms and dads. It really is. Joseph was courageous, both before his wife and before his son. Encourage is something we need to fulfill God's will and God's call. Because there's a price that, to pay with it. There is a price to pay. So we need courage. And God is willing to give that to us. We are ordinary men and women, right? We're not extraordinary people. I mean, you are extraordinary. But you know what I'm saying. You know, we're not like, you know, great charismatic leaders. We don't have huge wealth and prestige and power. But we have God living in us. Emmanuel has come to dwell in us. So we who are ordinary can live extraordinary lives. We can have that kind of moral clarity and courage. Even now, God will give that to us as he gives everything else to us by grace. But we have to collaborate with him. We have to be actively cultivating that in our lives. So I just encourage you as you enter into this season, and I encourage my heart to let's trust God so that we can play the part that God's called us to play. And so that we can do it with the kind of courage that it will require. And God will be faithful. He will be faithful to you.